everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Machiavelli, and Galileo Galilei. Names we all easily recognize and know, whether it's the mastery of the paintbrush and chisel, changing our understanding of the universe, or setting up a firm foundation for political philosophy, these men have changed the world in undeniable ways. They have other things in common. They're all Italian. They were all foundational figures of the Renaissance, and by default the grandfathers of the Enlightenment. They were also all funded by one family, the Medicis. Now, the names Lorenzo, Giuliano, and Cosimo de' Medici may not be as recognizable as the others but their contributions helped make those men the names we remember 600 years later. They didn't just fund them. They protected them against a society that was not ready for their ideas. They were their patrons and their muses, whose ideas permeated through the works of their clients. They were, in short, mentors. And they were innovators in their own right. They were one of the early pioneers of finance, from building one of the first banking empires in history to being among the earliest businesses to use the general ledger system for accounting. Their biggest achievement in our eyes, they demonstrated that behind every great innovation, there's someone with a purse that has to fund it. Now our guests today are way too modest to ever compare themselves to the Medicis. But we feel that if tech entrepreneurs and Kanye West can get to call themselves Renaissance men, then Karim Hussein and Tariq Asad Two of the three managing partners at Algebra Ventures have the right to make that comparison. And if they don't, we'll just have to do it for them. But if you look at the revolution in tech, and by extension its emergence in Egypt as the new renaissance, then the comparison doesn't seem as grandiose as it sounds. Algebra Ventures, the $50 million venture capital fund that focuses on early stage startups, is a name that has become ubiquitous with the Egyptian tech startup scene. Their portfolio companies are quickly becoming some of the most recognizable startups in the region. You'll probably order food using El Menus. If you transport anything on a truck, Trella is eliminating a lot of that hassle for you. And if you need an inexpensive mobility solution, Halen has gained a lot of ground outside of Cairo. Founded in 2015, the vision was to enable change through providing entrepreneurial guidance. Their portfolio is very diverse, with companies operating in fintech, e-commerce, and transportation and others. They both believe their success is critical to the future of venture capital in Egypt and the region, carrying with them a responsibility to grow the industry and act as a proof of concept. The initial rounds of investment in startups known as seed funding and Series A are becoming more and more common in the region. The bigger Series B and Series C tickets, those that range from $50 million and more, are much less common. VCs like Algebra are hoping to facilitate that next step for regional startups. Before we continue, a short disclaimer, Ziad Mukhtar, the third managing partner, could not attend the interview. We suspect it's because he didn't want to cram three of his partners in a two-person studio. Your host for today is Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief. This interview was recorded pre-COVID-19. 
So guys, thank you very much for joining us here today. I think we'll start off by asking you each to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners just a little tiny bit about you. My name is uh, Tariq Asad. I am a managing partner at Algebra Ventures. I've been in the venture industry in Egypt for the past 10 years. I've seen a lot of ups and downs uh, uh, throughout that time. I'm a huge geek, so I was a software developer in the San Francisco Bay Area. All right, Karim. Hi, I'm Karim Hussain, also managing partner at Algebra Ventures and also a geek, I guess. We are a firm of geeks. <laughs> um, I have started several technology companies in the past and I'm passionate about helping entrepreneurs uh, realize uh, their dreams and super excited about uh, the future of how technology can change our lives. All right. Where did the name Algebra come from? It's the, it's the biggest innovation that has come out of this part of the world and it's arguably the basis of all science. All right. What toy or game or hobby that you loved as a kid had the greatest impact on you as a business professional today? Kareem, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, well, I actually like to break toys mostly. So break I like, toys, I like huh? to break them apart, figure out how they worked. So that was like probably my favorite thing to do uh, and hopefully put them back together, <laughs> usually in a different form. Okay. Uh, but yeah, probably two toys that had a significant impact, uh, probably my Spectrum ZX80, so first computer I ever had. Did it come uh, in a kit? Yes, it did come in a kit and put it all together. I always like putting things together and taking things apart. And uh, Meccano, I always like doing things with my hands. So um being a computer geek, but also loving to work things out with my hands. With your so. hands. How old were you when you got your ZX? Oh, God. I was probably six, seven. Seven years old. Yeah. Yeah. And it had no sound. No, nothing. Black and white. And was this in Egypt or abroad? This was in Kuwait. I grew up in, in Kuwait. Kuwait. Yeah. Okay. Tarek, what about you? Uh, I've thought about that for a while. And I think the one that um, has shaped most of my thinking today was the board game Risk. Risk. Uh, because I played that game with the same people over and over again. So it is, it's interesting because you start out planning certain things and then other people react in certain ways. So you start playing the game a little bit differently because you know who else is playing with you. Okay. And then over time you collude with some people against some others and then they get upset and then you collude with other people. And that sounds a lot like, like business today. How long have you guys known each other? We've known each other for five years, maybe? Six We've years. known each other for something like five, six years. Uh, we've been working together for three years. Where did the idea for the firm come from, though? I mean, how did you guys meet, the two of you? So we started Algebra off of the success of a previous fund where we invested mm -hmm. in Fauri and Visita and a couple of other uh, successful companies. So we, we had, yeah, they're great names. We're very proud to be part of that. We, you know, we had some track record and there were many investors looking to come in and sort of take a bet on Egypt. We were well positioned because we had done it for some time. And so I, that, that's how we started Algebra. We, we, we saw the opportunity. It was very clear for us. We had been there for a while. We were starting to see the attraction happening. Uh, and just like this has happened everywhere in the world, there's no reason for it not to happen here. Yeah, and I came at it from a slightly different angle. I, I'd uh, come back to Egypt in 2011. I'd started a couple of businesses. In you Egypt. came back in 2011. Yeah. So I started. Interesting choice of vintage year. This <laughs> <laughs> is an interesting year. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd started a couple of businesses in the States and I'd been an entrepreneur myself. And uh, when I came back. What type back, of business? Uh, one was uh, actually InsureTech before InsureTech really existed back in 2000. Yeah. Uh, it's a company that did uh, software for commercial insurance in a SaaS model. Um, and, uh, you know, we eventually had the whole Dutch Bourse running on our system uh, for insurance uh, management. And that was based in London and New York. And then what happened to the company? Uh, we sold it to Oracle eventually. To Oracle. Okay. So it became part of the Oracle insurance suite. After that, I worked at WebMD and 
to manage technology and products at WebMD and um, made everyone a hypochondriac, as people tell me. But that's, <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the fun I of the business. I spent too much time on that side. <laughs> so yeah, when I, I just thought I had a couple more businesses in me and decided I wanted to come back to Egypt. So uh, I came back to Egypt and mostly actually worked with other small companies as a mentor and angel investor. And then decided that, you know, needed a little bit more leverage and to build these companies up further and have greater impact. So, and that's, you know, when I met Tarek and Ziad and we worked on this together. What was the, the thesis for you guys? Well, from my perspective, it's that we really believe that technology will solve difficult problems in Egypt. And we believe that entrepreneurs are the best positioned people to make that happen. We're seeing that we, we've started seeing it, you know, over the past 10 years, we started seeing it happen and accumulate over time. And today it's really sort of turning a corner or coming to fruition um, in a lot of different types of opportunities. There are, um, you know, we all see the problems that we suffer from here. And especially as you go into the more remote areas of Egypt mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of stuff that has not been done and services that are not being offered and things that cost way too much relative to other parts of the world or even to other parts of Egypt. And the way to dismantle that is really through technology. What three problems, can you name three problems that entrepreneurs are working on right now? I'm biased, so I'll name three from our own from portfolio. Your own portfolio. <laughs> sure. uh, so distribution of uh, goods from SME manufacturers, access to uh, basic financial services, and uh, mobility, the ability to move either people or goods from one point to another point in an inexpensive way. Uh, what does a venture capital firm do? Let's break it down in simple steps that our listeners today who are not from the finance industry, not from banking, not from tech, can you know, easily grasp. You come in, you look for a business at a fairly early stage of development. Take it from there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're looking for early stage companies that are typically very strong teams that we believe in and that are addressing a very large market or an interesting market that we think is ripe for change. Um, so that's the first step is really identifying the businesses that are interesting. Once we do, we try to understand, you know, how big could this business look like? And then from there, decide, you know, how much money might be required to get them to the next stage. So what's, what's to get them to a point where they're now really prepped for very high growth. After that, most of our activity with the, the companies is really around supporting them on a whole broad range of things. One, in terms of just uh, rounding out their teams. So typically any companies missing certain functions, identifying the right talent for them. We have our own in-house teams that just identify talent across the country. It's always a challenge to find good talent. So that starts, that's the beginning, great talent. And then we support along the way with the right level of strategy and operations uh, support throughout. So we're there as as a supporting function to the business, we're not uh, directing any of the businesses that we invest in, uh, primarily because if we could, we should we should be doing that business. But it's actually the entrepreneur's business; they know it better than any than we would. But you're fairly hands on. You're not a public market investor who comes in, buys a bunch of shares on a stock exchange, and hopes for share price appreciation. Yeah, we're definitely hands on, and we're just another member in the team. So that's that's probably the best way to look at it. Another member with the team with presumably a little bit more experience. We've seen the same businesses uh, in different markets or uh, in different sectors. As I said, all three of us have been entrepreneurs as well. We've seen companies start from zero to 50 employees, 50 to 100, 100 to 1,000. Uh, so each of those stages has dramatic different uh, challenges. And um, we try to prep them ahead of time. But 
you really can't trap the teams for that. It's just uh, they experience it for themselves and you can kind of help adjust along the way. Um, so that's, I think, the heart of what we do is really be the backing support for many of our businesses. The next stage is as as they grow and need more financing, given our networks across um, the region and across the, the globe, we help identify new investors that could come in and support the company going forward. We'll continue to support the businesses, but there are certain size of tickets or investments that are beyond us. So we would bring in other partners from the region or across the globe to support the business going forward. And how do you make your money? Um, so a, a typical venture fund operates uh, in a not to dissimilar way to private equity. Uh, it's a combination of management fees and carried interest. And what that means basically is the management fee is a fee that we get on a periodic basis. And that's enough to sort of keep the lights on and um, just cover basic costs. But when you re- where we really make our money is where our investors make money. So there's typically, uh, you know, the, the industry is at the 80-20 split. So the investors get 80% of the returns beyond the initial capital and uh, we get another 20. Are and you guys principal investors in your own funds or your own transactions? Yes. yes sir. So you make capital gains there as well? We do. For us, it's um, it's not a game of, of growing the fund and getting more money from management fees and sort of growing the, the, the asset base. It's really about generating exceptional returns for our investors and, and therefore for ourselves. We, what we want to see is we want to see venture capital becoming an asset class in this part of the world. It's a new thing. Uh, it's still not proven. It's happened in a lot of almost every other region in the world. It's still in the making um, in, in the Middle East and Africa. What has to happen for it to become a proven asset class? So the holy uh, or the asset test for it is that um, you know investors see economically attractive returns. And I would say that today, the investors that are interested in this space are either, uh, and certainly our LP base, is a mix of investors who are in it just for the economic return and investors who want to see that and impact as well. So you've got double bottom line types of organizations and pure, uh, so, you know, a DFI, for example, and the family office. A DFI is a development finance institution. So uh, IFC, EBRD, uh, these types of organizations, uh, or a family office that just wants to see returns. They all want to see pipeline. They all want to look at this market, understand the, the, the new trends. It's happening at breakneck speed. Our successful companies are growing somewhere at between 20, 30, 50% per month. Per month. Per month for four years. It scales up pretty quickly. And I think everyone and all of our investors and ourselves, we, and we had never seen that before. We, you know, at least I've been in this market for a long time and I hadn't seen these phenomenal rates of growth. And with that comes more uh, need for more capital, the ability to pull in stronger talent. Uh, so, you know, I remember, for example, a few years ago when fairly senior executive left, left uh, a pharma multinational company to start a tech startup, people said, you're completely crazy. Uh, when they started to attract others, um, you know, the family members and friends and so on would say, are you, you are leaving a successful multinational company to go work for a small little Egyptian company that has 10 people in it. You're, you're crazy. You're, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're on drugs and something is wrong with you. <laughs> you know, the, the father-in-law would call and say, what are you doing to my daughter and, and, and your kids and things like that. But now it's becoming uh, a trend. People are talking, people, these types of profiles are talking to each other about, I see an opportunity in this startup. I see another opportunity in that startup. FinTech is really interesting. Mobility is where the place to be. The, the, the mindset has shifted completely. And that's for, very interesting for us. 
how far are we away from that wave of exits that is proof of concept for VC in our part of the world? I'm presuming that your LPs and other people like them, the IFCs and the EBRDs, the DEGs of the world are seeing you know, that in at least one half of that double bottom line. Well, I think there's one a challenge is obviously as we are getting much of our LP base, our investor bases from DFIs, that's only going to last for one or two cycles. So there's a huge burden on our shoulders to make sure uh, we succeed. So uh, and we succeed in proper economic terms, not just uh, in terms of uh, just simple impact and enabling a few startups. So the exits are critical. We're starting to see some, obviously, in the last year or two, there's been some very high-profile exits. There's been uh, Fauri. Fauri, definitely, in Egypt, the first VC-backed IPO in the whole region. So that's exciting to see. That's the beginning of a path towards that. I think that form of exit, I mean, IPO is not the only way to exit. There's There's been other businesses in Egypt, much smaller, some smaller ones that have exited to large global uh, tech companies uh, like Harmonica being re- recently sold. And we've seen those patterns in the past and we hope to see more of those and uh, some will IPO. And I think there may be a need for an evolution of the IPO or the uh, stock market in Egypt to support companies that are making losses to list. I mean, you know, Amazon in Egypt would not be able to list until three years ago. <laughs> so Absolutely. It would have been Absolutely. 15 or 20 years before they were able to list on the public market. So, Is that uh, something that you guys are talking to Mohammed Farid about or something that the VC community is talking to? The, the community has about? definitely been discussing that and discussing what different approaches to uh, change the public market structure to allow for that kind of investment. But yeah, IPO is only, I mean, even in developed markets, that's a very small portion of businesses that actually go public. Most of them do exit through a trade sale. Or in, in our region, a lot of them have exited through private equity transactions. So that's, that's also another trend we see around. How is venture capital different in emerging markets versus developed markets? I remember once when we very first met, you were excitedly going off to a conference in San Francisco. I presumed you'd be rubbing elbows with Mark Andreessen and, you know, the sort of luminaries of Silicon Valley VC world. And you told me you were much more interested that you're going to get to see some lady from Latin America and a gentleman from East Asia because you guys had more in common than you would with an Andreessen Horowitz or another, you know, capital V, capital C firm from Silicon Valley. So what's the difference? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I actually spent some time in Silicon Valley before before coming back to Egypt. So uh, many of my friends there and, and from business school have become successful VCs in the, in the Bay Area. It, it's a completely different world. We are very much a startup ourselves. We're trying to figure out how venture works in Egypt and in this part of the world. It's very, what I can tell you for sure is it's very, very different from what's in the valley. A few things, the ecosystem there is very well structured and mature. So if you're trying to understand a certain opportunity or to assess a certain opportunity, you're going to have five or six people in your Rolodex that have done it before that you can go talk to. That's clear. It's well structured and documented, especially with the established uh, firms. Uh, the terms are known. The ability to get talent is known. In Egypt, we're working on these things. We're trying to figure them out. We're trying to get executive at Vodafone or PNG or IBM to think of startups in a different way to come and, and meet these teams and, and understand what kind of potential these companies provide and what the employment opportunity they provide to them. We're trying to still solve these problems. Things uh, happen here in a very different way than they do in other parts of the world. And I think most importantly, the problems that we are solving here are structurally similar to other developing parts of the world, like 
Latin America or Southeast Asia. And that's why I was excited to meet these guys because I can learn from them a lot more than I can learn from a very successful uh, venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. They, the structural problems from, on, um, in the environment in which they operate are very similar. The mindset is uh, similar. The stage of development is also similar. Uh, it's just much more relevant. Uh, or even when we talk to uh, other investors from sub-Saharan Africa, for example, in fintech, there are a lot of parallels here. Uh, when we invested in Fauri, I remember I went and talked to one of my Silicon Valley VC friends and I explained what we were doing and he said, why, why don't they just use credit cards? <laughs> it's just, it's a different world. It's a different world. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's also because the environment has so many different startups and so many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that the entrepreneurs themselves learn by osmosis through their colleagues and friends around them uh, in in our context, because there's so few and sparse and uh, far between and few successes that uh, our role becomes much more important in sort of guiding and supporting those businesses versus in Silicon Valley, it may be primarily more about investment, maybe building some business development and partnerships, but more about the capital, less about the talent and the strategy and direction, which is a little bit where we have to support a little bit more as the ecosystem evolves. But having said all of that, there are things that, that I personally at least look to and would love to see here. And and for like me, the, the biggest thing is I, I I moved to the Bay Area when I was 22 years old. I was a young software engineer. No way. Uh, I worked for a small startup. This is .com 1.0. And the thing that I, that I felt is the most impactful uh, factor for me was when I was 22 years old, I would walk around the Bay Area and I would see there are all these successful companies. So, for example, in the office that, that I was in, the guys right next door were Hotmail. No way. When they got bought out by Microsoft, Microsoft. Yeah. I thought, you know, these guys aren't doing anything. They're not amazing superheroes. They're just normal people. I've, I've met them. I can be like these guys. You know, the role models are right next to you and they're very relevant and very approachable. So it's very easy for a young 22-year-old engineer to feel like they can become, they can be part of that success. They, they can do what these guys are doing. And there's this incredible virtuous cycle that gets these people to be energized, to go out and start companies and inspire other people and, and so on. And that is what I would love to see here. It's starting to happen uh, and it's very gratifying to see it start to happen. But I think we still have some time to go. Maintainnet is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. What makes for a great portfolio company? What are the hallmarks of a great business? A huge market that they address. How big? What, how, how big does it have to be to qualify as a huge market? Probably a billion dollars or above. A re relatively smooth path to scaling so that uh, the cost of the incremental customer is very low. And that's why we like technology-enabled businesses because they scale efficiently. You don't need to add employees, a significant amount of employees for every new thousand customers you add to the business. And the third, I think, critical element is that there's something inherent in the business model or in the product that protects it from competition in some fashion. Um, and then, you know, as I said, the team is the heart of it. Uh, the people in the business are what makes it happen. Uh, they can see... Because you can't stave off competition forever. You always have to be evolving, building new businesses and, uh, and growing in your marketplace. So both of you guys have emphasized team. What are the hallmarks of a great team? Uh, so we think of a few things. There's, there's a certain skill set that needs to be there, uh, both on a, from a functional perspective 
And from a domain expertise perspective, there is the passion and there is the chemistry between the team members. So we've seen, you know, very young teams with little experience uh, that are very passionate go out and really execute and, and grow and, uh, uh, and beat much more experienced teams just because they work really well together. But at some point, many of the companies we've invested in and others that we've seen uh, also end up bringing on board um, you know, sort of more gray hair. Uh, industry experience or functional experience. So, you know, if you started a phenomenal tech startup and you're, you're, it's growing at 30, 40% per month, in many cases, you're going to want to bring in an experienced, you know, head of operations, let's say, to help with, with certain issues. And I think having these different skill sets and having that diversity inside the, inside startups is one of the things that make them unique because you don't see that as much in, in traditional business. How big is a company when it first comes into contact with you guys, top line and people? It can be anything from five people and no revenue to I think the largest investment we've made was at $40 million of revenue. Uh, that was Holiday Me in Dubai. Well, whenever we see the opportunity for growth is what really counts for us. Uh, we're not formulaic about size or, or scale or, uh, or pretty much anything else except, you know, staying within technology and, and, and seeing the potential growth. So why don't you guys walk us through your investment process? How do you find the transactions? How do you qualify them? And then how do you decide that this is a no or a no-go for us? A go or no-go. <laughs> Not a no or no-go. <laughs> I say no or no-go. I say no or no-go. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully this is a go. There's plenty of goes. We go with where we source different companies. I mean, we have such a broad array of uh, places where we uh, find great companies, uh, either through our network of friends and other uh, partners in in technology ecosystem through many of the incubators that have uh, you know that are doing great work on on the ground in Egypt as people start to know more about algebra or know about more about VCs in general we'll see many many of those come knocking on our door so that's sort of the initial phase of just identifying uh we work as, as well with uh, some universities and uh, and some associations that uh, attract technology talent uh, and and discuss that with. And the last one, probably one of the strongest areas, is alumni of other startups. So um, just like in the US, people talk about the PayPal mafia. So Elon Musk is part of that, others. So what's uh, the mafia in Egypt? Well, there's several of them. Uh, I don't want to name specific names, but as we see more and more successes, Fauri, for example, with their success, well, I'm sure there'll be a significant Fauri mafia. It's already there. But there's many from older generations, Link Developments, for example, uh, Link.net. That's a significant mafia. IT works. Uh, there's a large set of them, and I'm sure I've missed a large number of those, um, even in the core technology phase. So, you know, uh, when talking about mentor graphics business in Egypt, also spread a lot of um, great talent in silicon design. We see that as another major source of great talent uh, and great teams. As they've been parts of successes, they've seen how to operate. Kareem is another one in the region that we've seen great uh, talent come out of. Uh, and they have the right mindset to know how to scale a business from zero to 16 very quickly. So who's on your investment committee? Three partners. And you have to decide unanimously? Yes. Yes. And what happens if you are not unanimous on something? We yeah. fight and we fight, fight a little fight. bit. <laughs> <laughs> Someone leaves upset, but generally, you know. It works out in the end. It, works it, out. it does. I and mean, we have 16 companies in the portfolio right now. I would say this is our biggest achievement in the past three years is the phenomenal companies that we are uh, lucky to be associated with. 
They are, um, you know, building great businesses, developing very strong technology, gaining market share, growing in revenues uh, at a pace that we that has really exceeded our expectations. So we thought we would it would take us five years to build our portfolio. We'll probably build it in three and a half. Three and a half. What are the red flags? What screams? This is not an investment opportunity for algebra. A uh, founder who's working on three companies in parallel. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um. A team that's just come together is not really aligned. It's not. It's it's usually around teams and people. That's a, that's the challenge. Um, and the other big red flag is someone addressing a very small market or a niche a niche space, uh, and believing they can just burn cash to to capture that. Okay. Typically, another thing. The word "burn cash" in itself is just offensive. To, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> offensive. Offensive to any human like being, that. right? Yes. So uh, I think that's that's just become such a normal term to use. In, in the Do not come to algebra talking about burn rate. Yeah, and I think we are trying to be disciplined in pursuing sort of quote unquote hot opportunities. There are companies that are can generate a lot of hype. Uh, that are growing. Uh, many of them are spending a lot of money on marketing and, and not quite as much on capacity or technology development or sort of building the bones of the company. Uh, we tend not to be very attracted to that type of opportunity. Uh, we prefer businesses that will last and be great in their own right, not driven by investor interest, but rather driven by market interest. What are you most passionate or interested in right now? You know, I think in Egypt, we have a special talent and some very strong core technology businesses. And we're looking for more interesting businesses. There is, a, you know, in, in Tarek's portfolio, a previous business called Cyware, which created unique silicon design technology that's now being used globally by global tech firms. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. We have 16 companies today in the portfolio, out of which zero are fintech. Zero. We've been looking and even though we've done fintech investments before, but we hadn't really found anything that we were very excited about. Today, the last investment that we approved that we haven't signed yet is fintech. And three out of the four companies we're looking at closely are fintech. So fintech is really taking off. You've both been part of this ecosystem, as you call it, for a really long time. But you guys have seen the progression of the industry over a period of years. How has it emerged? How has it evolved? And where do we stand today relative to potential? Uh, I remember when I came back from the US, my friends would tell me, what the hell are you doing with your life? You know, you're a well-educated guy. Why don't you get a real job for uh, a multinational <laughs> or something? What is this stuff that you're wasting your time on? Today, the second and third generation uh, business uh, owners, you know, people from my generation will call me and say, hey, we're interested in this in the angel round. Can you help us out? Or this other angel is crowding me out and I want to come in or things like that. The The, the mindset has changed very significantly. And, and even the... The narrative and how people are approaching this of all different types of people from young entrepreneurs to experienced executives to large business owners. It's, it's starting to really shape up. And that's, uh, that's very gratifying for us. Yeah, and I was uh, a large portion of like the last 20 years, I was not living in Egypt. So it's only the last seven or eight years that I have been here. But I used to come more on a periodic basis. So you see the transition more clearly when you're a little bit removed from the environment. And uh, I think the biggest change in my in my view is a little bit about mindset, hmm. the ability for the confidence of the entrepreneurs and believing they can change something, they can change the world around them. That that confidence didn't exist before, or they were working on small problems or small issues. Now the challenges they're addressing are market challenges or global challenges or you know regional challenges. So I think that's that's a significant change in the psyche of the typical entrepreneur in the technology space in Egypt. I still don't understand why you came back. 
<laughs> you built a business, you sold it in a trade sale successfully, you did WebMD, huge, high-profile, global yeah. thing, took it public, and then you came back in 2011, man. Why? I, I still don't get the answer. Because Egypt's always been exciting. It's it's home. It always will be home. And, uh, you know, I, I've always felt a strong affinity to living here and working here. And, and to be honest with you, on, the, on a day-to-day basis, you feel the impact very strongly of, like, your contribution to the society or to the environment around you. I think one of my most exciting things about being at WebMD was really building products that change people's lives. And that that's what excited me about it, you know. Hearing from somebody, oh, the symptom checker saved my dad's eyesight when I was walking because I checked something on it and needed to rush him to the emergency room. So these are the things that really resonated with me. And uh, and in Egypt, I felt I had a, a you know I felt more and more challenges that needed to be resolved, and uh, thought would have a better impact here. All right, so let's talk about algebra itself for a minute. What's the future of the firm? What are you guys building right now? We see ourselves doing a lot more of the same for some time. We think that this wave of technology entrepreneurship and and, uh, what technology can do to solve difficult problems will continue to grow. We're seeing ourselves doing more geographically, maybe. So our current fund does Egypt and we have three investments of the 16 out from from the Middle East region. That's Dubai and where else? That's Dubai and Jordan. Okay. We have the ability to invest in other countries such as Saudi, Morocco and Tunisia, but we haven't, haven't made any investments there yet. But I think an, uh, an interesting expansion for us would be to go to sub-Saharan Africa. Is it hard to imagine going outside of a region that you know really well? It is to some extent challenging, uh, but we've been over the last probably year or two building a lot of relationships with uh, markets you know, in sub-Saharan Africa. And some of our own businesses are looking to expand there and have expanded. Uh, Halans is now operating in Sudan and Ethiopia. Uh, and several others already have beachheads in East Africa and a variety of locations there. It's a little bit of a challenge understanding the local culture, the local operators. Um, but as our current portfolio builds up their footprint in in different regions, I think we will follow them in this case rather than them following us. <laughs> so we'll follow them and start building the appropriate relationships there. I think it's going to be challenging, uh, but we see that as the natural next frontier for most of the Egyptian startups that we deal with. And we think there will be also opportunities there that could feed back into Egypt as well. How much of your wealth is tied up in venture capital? Our personal wealth? Personal or? wealth. Well, we'd advise anybody who's ever going to invest in venture capital to not invest more than three to five percent of them. In our case, we've our career and our life is in venture venture capital. capital, So we're probably a lot larger than the typical investor should be in VC. Who are the next wave of limited partners in the funds that you guys will raise in the future? Obviously, you don't know them by name, but qualitatively, who are these people? Well, a little bit more of the same. Um... Some of the DFIs, the development financial institutions, but we also see a huge interest, as I said, in actually, as as Tarek just mentioned, in several of our most recent investments, a significant portion of the round was taken by large family offices in Egypt. Uh, So we see an increased interest there. Uh, an increased interest from some corporate VCs as well. We've talked to a few locally that seem to be interested in being LPs to get exposure and, and a view of what's happening in the market. What's a corporate VC? This is like a captive VC. A corporate VC is typically the funds set aside by a corporation, a, corporation. a large company that are 
typically exploratory. Uh, in some cases, they may be strategic. So Cisco, for example, is an investor in us, and Cisco for this is really exploratory, seeing seeing what's happening in the market, understanding. You know, in certain cases, they may wish to invest with us on a, on a specific uh, deal, uh, but it's really to get gain exposure to new trends and new changes and technologies in the market. And the other thing is we currently don't have any Egyptian investors, which is something we don't like. Yeah. When we raised the, the, the fund, we had to go to people who were sort of willing to take some risk and had seen venture capital work in other markets. Uh, and, you know, we're very fortunate to have gotten the backing of these large global organizations. For our next fund, we'd love to have a few Egyptian investors because we think that's important from uh, both from our ability to partner locally but also as this becomes more of an asset class, the local investors uh, will be able to see, you know, how that, how this asset class performs and understand it better and, and so on. We, we, we feel like we have a bit of a responsibility given that we, you know, we raised the fund and, you know, we're getting traction to, to make sure that this happens both on the portfolio company side, but also on the investor side. So when will you guys be in the market to raise Algebra 2? Well, we've been we've had sixteen investments to date, and we continue to uh, see great opportunities. And we we you know have a large amount in our pipeline, and we'll continue to be investing uh, throughout the coming few months. And that pace of investment has accelerated. The rounds are getting larger as we see much faster growth from some of these businesses that we're investing in. Many of them growing at fifty percent month over month and requiring additional capital. And we see that, you know, probably in the 2020, we'll uh, add additional capital and funds into the market to further spur faster growth in the, in the market. And that's where we might see some Egyptian names coming in. Yeah, we hope to see that. How do you explain to someone that you've invested in who's coming back to you saying, look, I only need another X to get to the next stage. And you know that the next stage just isn't going to generate the return that you want. And you got to say no. How do you do that? That's one of the most difficult parts of uh, of this job, in my opinion. Uh, we work with people who put blood, sweat, and tears into these startups. You know, the level of passion is very high. It becomes their babies. We've I've seen people, you know, sell personal property. I mean, sell their cars to keep these businesses afloat. However, we need to have the discipline of of telling them things exactly the way we see them. I, I believe that if you if you give if if you provide capital for the wrong reasons, you're actually doing them a disservice, because our responsibility and given our experience and given the portfolio that we see and so on is to provide honest advice, even if it's tough advice. And in many cases, we'll have to go and have a tough conversation with our, with our entrepreneurs and, and show that things are not working. Um, and it's difficult for entrepreneurs, but I feel it's part of our role. And part of the, part of the conversation is also, I mean, I think that entrepreneurs and, and the startups we invest in, portfolios we invest in, need to understand that we also need to be successful for the next set of portfolio companies to be successful. Your business in your own right. We actually could destroy the whole VC industry in, in Egypt if, if we are not successful or if a few of us VCs in at least one or two of them are successful, then there, there won't be additional funds. No one will invest in in the future of uh, technology-enabled startups in, in Egypt. So it's, uh, it's critical that both people win. I'm going to ask you guys for your pitch, but a slightly different pitch. Everybody who comes on has to tell us why we would buy one share of you. So not why would I become an LP in one of your funds, but why would I join you guys as a member of the general partnership? What's your pitch? My pitch would be come work with the most exciting technology portfolio in Egypt. That's what excites me. That's what gets me up in the morning. And that's why I want to go to work in the morning because we are very fortunate to work with Phenomenal entrepreneurs that are building great businesses. Kareem? Yeah, that's 
similar to Tarek, it's like, you know, come help fuel the engines of growth for the future and uh, come enjoy the change, the, the dynamic change that we see over time. So it's, you need people who we, we love people or love investors that are comfortable with change and comfortable uh, with the risks associated with those changes and are constantly intellectually curious and uh, looking for cool new ideas and thoughts. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. This season is brought to you by CIB and by the United States Agency for International Development. And that's how we're making it.